I'm uh, Danny from the Scotland Malawi Partnerships Youth Committee. And today's podcast, we're going to be um, looking at the topic of climate justice. It's kind of the, the theme of the youth festival is both climate change and the topics of race and equality. And so we're sort of looking to bring these two topics together today. Um, and yeah, so we're going to through through different perspectives and stories, um, particularly through the reflections of young people engaged with environmental activism and climate change work more broadly. We're kind of looking to unpack this topic and how it is understood in, in different contexts, such as between uh, Scotland and Malawi um, and, you know, different across different lived experiences. So um, first, we're going to be speaking to um, someone who has an interesting perspective on this topic, um, Muti from uh, Baseflow. Uh, hi, Muti, I'd love it if you could introduce yourself uh, and tell us a little bit about how you got involved with climate work and what you're currently doing. Uh, hi, Danny. Thanks. Um, as you said, my name is Muti. My surname is a bit difficult for most people to pronounce. Um, it's Nkema. So you have to it's, um, you have to do a thing with your tongue. So most people are not able to say it. So I just say Shema is fine. But if, if that's even difficult, just call me Muti. It's okay. Do not call me Mr. Shema because that's my father. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, yeah. As as you can, I'm a Malawian. Uh, as you can tell by my sense of humor, and um, I work in uh, the water sector in Malawi for an organization called Baseflow, and uh, it works primarily in the water sector, focused on groundwater issues. But um, if I was to categorize what we do in the context of climate justice, uh, we have two buckets of work. I would say it's around resilience building of local communities, as well as uh, social accountability of stakeholders, uh, particularly those that uh, claim to install uh, resilient water supply systems, but that are not actually resilient. So, um, so those are the kind of two buckets of work that we, that we do around uh, climate justice. Brilliant, thank you. Um, and I, I was wondering if you could um, reflect a bit on the impact that uh, colonization has had on Malawian agency to uh, define the climate crisis in its own terms, um, to suit its own needs and efforts, what your thoughts are on that? Uh, wow, okay, that's a very heavy topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a question that I've been reflecting on, and I think uh, also within the context of Black Lives Matter, I do understand where this question has come from. Um, and I've been thinking quite a lot about it when you asked it, uh, because it was quite challenging. But it also made me tr think, is there some impact of colonization on Malawians in terms of their agency? Um, I, you know, it's funny, as I try to unpack it, you actually put, took me down a rabbit hole that I didn't intend to go down. Um, mm. And I think for me, one of the things I was asking myself is, is can, you, can we objectively observe uh, the impact of colonization on the agency of Malawians? And I, I would say not really. Um, because in, if you look at the, the kind of work that we do, particularly the work that I do in the rural communities, um, like, for example, some work that we do around climate justice just close by here. If you went to a rural person and asked them what, that very same question, they would probably be confused. And they would, they would wonder, like, what, what are you on about? And that is because the reality of most Malawians here, they're really struggling with very basic needs, very basic requirements. And, and the question of whether colonization has an impact on their lives is one that they don't even consider. 
for to them even to even think about how david livingston impacted their lives right now would is a very far fetched question yeah um but but i i w- i want to take this um more from the perspective of some reflections i've had after i saw this question uh, particularly around black lives matter um for i know that for example as scotland you're going through your own journey in terms of trying to decolonize um academia decolonize development for example right now i know the scottish government is very interested in trying to listen to malawians and that's a very welcome development and i remember i was asked a question um particularly around the question of black lives matter and decolonization and what it meant for malawi and it's very interesting i thought that would be an easy question to answer and it wasn't it was a very difficult question surprisingly um and i couldn't unpack why it was difficult <laughs> because you'd think it's very obvious i mean black lives matter we understand what that is we understand what decolonizing is and i tried to ask myself what does that mean for malawi particularly in the context of climate justice and i struggled to be honest with you i really struggled but i went through i'll call i'll call them layers of reflection really trying to unpack what does that mean for me as a malawian and i think i went through three layers of um reflection that i wanted to just share particularly around the idea of uh let, let me talk about black lives matter but i will come back to decolonization um the idea of black lives matter is one i think as a people as a global citizens we agree is an issue that we need to tackle looking at how um so segments of the society that have been sort of objectified or forgotten in the in the economic growth um the neo neoliberal economic growth that we've witnessed um it's making us think about those things now when i was looking at black lives matter and trying to unpack it because I, the struggle i was having was i it was kind of like a mis, mis, mismatched jigsaw puzzle i couldn't take black lives matter and contextualize it to a malawian context i was struggling and i didn't understand why now when i was unpacking it i realized there was there was a first layer of reflection that i need to needed to peel off and that first layer of reflection was that black lives matter is an american export it's something that is inherently american and with that comes the narrative of jim crow the narrative of slavery and in the case of malawi it would be decolonization and the narrative of police brutality now all these things are important but they they are by and large important to the american experience that's not the experience of malawi that's probably not the experience of the united kingdom but obviously you'd be better placed to comment on that and and because it's not the narrative of malawi it made it very difficult for me to contextualize it because by and large in malawi we don't have a problem well relatively we don't have a problem with uh, police brutality as much as it may seem in the americas neither have we had anything similar to jim crow and of course we've had deco- we've had colonization up to about the 1960s 1964 but still exporting this american version of oppression i realized was the first problem was the first layer of reflection i had i said no i can't i can't import that that's an american narrative that's an american idea so that was the first layer that i got past i realized the first thing i was struggling with was this is an american narrative and obviously that's not malawi's story that's not scotland's story and to take it wholesale would be a mistake in that regard 
Now, and from there, I, when I peeled off that first layer, there was a second layer that I encountered, um, which was a bit, a bit more prob problematic. The first, the second layer actually had to do with, it's kind of connected to the American experience, which is that Black Lives Matter is inherently about black people versus white people. And that I struggled with <laughs> a lot because essentially what it postulates is that black people are always the oppressed and white people are always the oppressors. So it doesn't matter what the circumstance, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what the situation, white people will always be the oppressor and black people will always be the oppressed. And I, had a, I, I, and I didn't agree with that premise. I didn't agree with that paradigm for various reasons, because if you assume always, um, you are too, you're, you're a white person, and to assume that by virtue of your skin color, you are an oppressor, when I know nothing about you, <laughs> I know absolutely nothing about your history. I know absolutely nothing about what you have gone through. And for me to assume you're an oppressor, it's kind of arrogant of me to suggest that. But the problem with assuming that someone is an oppressor, someone like a, a white person, for example, who wants to do better, who wants to be an ally, would then be forced and would struggle with that because then they're like, okay, what do I do if I'm an oppressor? Now, what is happening, and this is something I think a lot of um, white people are struggling with, is that if you want to help, like you want to help with racial equality, and that's, and that's all for fair and good. You want to support, for example, climate justice work in Malawi, that's fair and good. But the moment you want to do that, you're accused of being a white savior, okay? That's the first bind you're stuck in. And then if you choose to not do anything because you want to give black people like myself the space to speak, you are accused of uh, white violence by virtue of your silence or by propping up white supremacy. So as white people, you're kind of stuck in a kind of bind by virtue of you being called an oppressor. So even if you want to make a difference, you're kind of stuck either way. <laughs> and, and then even if you want to absolve yourself of your white guilt or your supposed white uh, privilege, um, it then becomes about you. It's not really about racial equality because you're worried more, you're more concerned with yourself and saying, well, I feel this white guilt, can you absolve me of it, dear black man? And, and that's, that's also self-centered. So, and that's the problem if, if you look at white, at white people as purely the oppressors, it's, it's a problematic position. However, the suggestion that black people are universally oppressed or people of color are universally oppressed is itself problematic because then what it does is that any person of color will assume that therefore they can be absolved of any responsibility for their life circumstances. In the case of climate justice, for example, um, going to the decolonization question you asked earlier, um, how does decolonization, how is colonization responsible for the climate, um, the climate justice problems we have now? If you actually go out into the field and look at the deforestation that's happening, it's not white people that are doing that, it is black people that are doing that. It's, it's Malawians in this case. If you look at, for example, there was a recent case in Malawi where a, an undercover reporter uncovered a syndicate where people are smuggling charcoal, which is illegal by the way, and the police are in on it. No white person was involved there. It was black people that did that. 
Now, if you say that black people are always the oppressed, you give them an excuse to say, well, then I'm not responsible for my actions because I'm the one who I'm the one who's oppressed. And that's the that's the basic fundamental problem with that. And also it nullifies any agency they have. And this goes to the agency question, because if we claim that the problems that black people have in modern times are because of things that happened 100 years ago, then I can gladly blame you for all my problems. <laughs> because because then I have no agency, because you've told me I have no agency, and you've also told me that, well, I can, I can be absorbed in, of any problem or any of my decisions or outcome of my decisions by virtue of my skin color. And that is problematic. So that second layer, looking at white people as, as the oppressors and black people as always being oppressed, I fundamentally disagree with because it's problematic either way. And what kind of a world would we have if we only looked at people by virtue of their skin color or judged them by virtue of their skin color? I don't want to live in a world like that. I want to look at you, Danny, as Danny. You're just a person who happens to be a woman and who also happens to be white. That, that's all that should matter. What should matter is that you're a human being. And the third and final layer, and I think this is where I'm at right now, is that Black Lives Matter and decolonization and all these things, what is the purpose? What is at the core of these things? And I think it's two fundamental things. And this is where I've settled at now. I don't know where I'll be tomorrow. Um, number one, it's about empathy. And number two, it's about accountability. Decolonization, trying to decolonize the past and looking at the past is really looking at how can the things that were perpetrated on black people be, can be we can attribute the current state of things to the past. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But, and also with Black Lives Matter, it's about trying to understand how, how can we dissect or unpack or deconstruct the current position or state of black people in the world and how much of that is due to systemic problems and how much of that is the responsibility of black people themselves. But inherently it's about empathy. That's number one. And that is putting yourself in the shoes of other people. And I think what climate change has, is showing is the world is now realizing, particularly the Western world, is realizing that their actions in terms of, for example, um, the greenhouse emissions, you know, that most of the developed world has contributed almost 70% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world. They're realizing that that is their own fault. And that is something that needs to be rectified or that is something that has to be corrected. And that is an acknowledgement of their mistake. And that is their empathy and they are also acknowledging that they need to be accountable for that. And this is why, for example, the Scottish government has made the investments it ha it's had in, um, in terms of climate justice. So this journey of decolonization and the journey of Black Lives Matter is meant to help us really unpack historical injustices, social injustices, and seeing how we can look at things from the lens of those who are disadvantaged and to be accountable where we can to each other as human beings. That is what I think um, decolonization and Black Lives Matter is about. It's about empathy and accountability. However, if we spend too much time in the past, we will not be able to deal with the problems that we have now. We can learn from the past, we can try to deconstruct the past, but we shouldn't spend too much time in the past because it is very easy to get bogged down and we don't deal with the realities that we have right now. Actually, because there are lots of young people at this conference, I'll give an example of Game of Thrones, which I'm sure you've seen. Um, the climate change situation, actually the author of Game of Thrones 
said that the white walkers in the series were, uh, were sort of a symbol for climate change, actually. So you have the white walkers coming towards the wall. And what are the kingdoms doing? What are the Lannisters doing? What are all these other kingdoms doing? They're fighting amongst themselves. Instead of dealing with the problem that is coming on the, on the other end of the wall. That to me is what I feel is the risk we have if we spend too much time deconstructing the past. Rather than dealing with the present danger of climate change and, and the physical danger that it presents to the rural poor, particularly here in Malawi, we will spend a lot of time deconstructing things. You asking me how I feel as a black person about your white privilege. We can do that all day, but we have white walkers at the gate and, and they're going to overthrow, and they are going to overcome us if we do not learn what we need to learn, but we need to focus on what do we do now to solve the problems that we have now in this moment. That was very long-winded, my apologies. But um, yeah, so that would be my comment or feedback to your question, which is, yeah, kind of long-winded. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Muti. That was such an interesting take. I really, really enjoyed what you had to say about that. And I guess just as a, a quick follow-up, um, I, I think, yeah, it's very, very interesting. I think what the point you made about um, decolonization and Black Lives Matter being a, a sort of quite an exported um, concept that that doesn't um, sort of prove completely relevant in, in every context, I think is, is really key here um, because I think the, the whole, the whole um, sort of point of climate justice as a concept as, as I've understood it uh, in its emergence is, you know, a concept to better understand how the climate crisis and, and social issues are intricately linked and, and sort of, you know, people on planet can't be separated out. You know, there's no necessarily solving the, the climate crisis without also at the same time looking at social issues. And I, and I, I think that it's a, it's a crucial point that um, I think what has happened during the climate sort of with the emergence of climate crisis narratives is a, a, definitely a centering of certain sort of dominant um, people or countries perspectives on um, you know setting the, the agenda for how we move forward in, in our climate struggles and I think yeah. that that's maybe you know why I initially uh, centered decolonization but but I think I think any any kind of equivalent, topic is it's important I think it has become more important in climate justice discussions in the UK to understand how do we not how do we make sure we're not centering our voice and precisely and mm. and I think that's something that you touched on so I think what my my sort of final question would just be um what do you think are the the sort of the social issues that come into play with um the environmental crisis yeah. um what, what do you think is kind of the dominant thing in Malawi to be to be thinking about for yes. people aren't as aware to, to be aware of? Yes, I think, um, thank you, that's a great question. I think um, in terms of the social issues in the Malawian context, I think you probably already know this, but in the last six years, we've had about two major floods, one in, one in 2015 and the last mm -hmm. one in 2019, and uh, they were quite severe. And, um, and, and of course, we're having other climatic shocks in terms of droughts and other things like that, extreme, uh, extreme climatic shocks. And, um, and of course, there are a lot, 
when you're when you're looking when you're really close to the detail it's very easy to get bogged down in the minutia of what's going on and when you try to take a step back i find and this is again from my perspective i feel the the largest social problem when it comes to climate justice in my country specifically is aid effectiveness um, at the moment, what you have is a lot of people wanting to come and help, and that is that is more than welcome. There's a lot of there are a lot of people who clearly want to support the effort and try to help communities come out of their situations, particularly to be more resilient, as you know the kind of work that we're doing. Um, but what is happening is the aid that is coming in is not being applied effectively because what's happening is you've got so many actors operating in isolation of each other. So the obvious outcome of that is you have duplication of efforts and um, you have wasted resources where maybe they should have been put to other use. And this is something I see all the time in my work. Um, but there's been another outcome of that, which is quite disturbing. Um, and, this is and this is something I've seen firsthand. Uh, this is, I, what we've done by being uncoordinated with our aid efforts, particularly when it comes to dealing with, uh, you know, in terms of humanitarian efforts, trying to um, deal with uh, cl climactic shocks, resilience building. The, the major problem I've seen um, is we have created dependencies on us in the rural communities. I want to give an example of what I mean. In one of the, um, okay, maybe I can give an example of what's happening further south. Um, about two years ago, a local chief in a certain village actually told organizations that wanted to come in and support. He specifically told them not to support certain households in his village. And when, we asked, and when he was asked why, he said, well, during the last flood, they were told to move and they didn't. And they are choosing to stay where they are. And the reason why they are choosing to stay where they are is because they know that every flooding that happens, NGOs will come running to help. So what's happening is we've incentivized a very perverse behavior where people, do not want to be resilient because they know they'll get resources in return. And again, in some of the work we've done, um, I've presented this to the Scottish government in, in some of our reports, where we are trying to make people resilient, but they do everything in their power to not be resilient. Um, so for some reason, I'll, I'll give you one specific example. We, um, we were trying to help a community do irrigation farming. Um, so we're trying to, this new method of irrigation farming, and we trained them, we did, the, we did all the training and such. Um, and then what happened was other community people told them not to work too hard, because if they worked too hard, they wouldn't get any kind of support from us because it, it would be seen like they don't need us, which is kind of the point. I want you not to need me. I want to build your capacity so that you don't have to come to me for help. But the thing is they want NGOs to still be around because we've incentivized, we've actually, if you want to talk about agency, you talked about colonization and agency, actually um, aid ineffectiveness has hampered the agency of people to be resilient because the aid is not being used properly and communities are taking advantage of our bumbling so that they can get financial help. And, oh man, it's, it's, it's amazing how this happens because they've sort of figured us out, you know, they've sort of gamed the system because you can go into a village with your help. Like, you know, you want to come in with food or whatever help you want, they'll receive it. And then in the very same afternoon, someone will come, come with the very same support and they'll tell them, oh, nobody came here to help us. Thank you for helping us. This is what we've incentivized. 
in the rural communities. And that is a bigger danger to, um, and that is a bigger danger to agency than colonization is. So, and the solution to that is obvious. It's coordination, it's people, it's people talking to each other, it's people sitting at the table and working and, and collaborating. But unfortunately, there isn't the appetite or incentive for that. You don't get a reward from a donor, for example, for coordinating better because what coordination means is that you save money and nobody wants to remit the money back. <laughs> so everyone is gonna keep doing what they're doing because, that's, because, that's, because the incentive is to spend money, not to spend it effectively. So yeah, that would be one, that would be a major social problem I see in Malawi. We, climate change is a major problem but, and the solution is to build the resilience of local communities, but because we are not coordinating properly, we have incentivized the perverse behavior in communities. And that is why every, almost every two or three years when we have a major flood, it's the same story. People get flooded, people come in to help, and we hope we've solved the problem by shifting people, but then people go right back because they know that the NGOs will come, they'll come driving down that hill with the, with the foreign aid that will cushion them for a couple of months. So not to be a pessimist, <laughs> um, but it's, it's what I see from my, from, from my end. Yeah, thank you, so fascinating. So better, more coordinated aid efforts and then I suppose also efforts that um, um, assist the sort of the building of people and communities own resilience yeah. as opposed to the like charity, the typical charity yeah. model of sort of down approach that's Precisely. fascinating thank you so much Miti. um but oh well if i was going to add one last thing um a, a simple sentence uh the question of what does black lives matter mean for malawi um actually we the slogan shouldn't be black lives matter in malawi i think the slogan should be black lives must matter first to black people um mm. that is that is particularly important to me because um, like I said, the American export of um, racism, slavery, um, it, it's relevant to the American experience, and that's fine. If we were to contextualize it in Malawi, it, it has a completely different form. It has the form of tribalism, for example, which is very subtle, to be fair. It's not like, you know, it's not, it's, it's not something that you as a foreigner would notice, but someone like me, I see it all the time. And it influences decisions, it influences allocation of resources, support, even in the climate justice sphere. So if anything, in Malawi, what does Black Lives Matter mean? Black lives must matter to Black people first, before we start demanding white people to, to, to care about Black lives. We need to, Black people need to care about each other first. Uh, that would be the last thing I say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Moti. That was brilliant. Really, really interesting to, to talk to you about this. And um, yeah, I hope we can have further conversations in the future. Thank you. You're welcome. And uh, all the best and stay safe. And now we're going to hear further reflections on this topic from a climate activist based in Scotland. We've got Joe Becker from the Yikes podcast here. Joe, really excited to have you with us today. Maybe you can introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, what work you're currently doing. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm uh, yeah, I'm a climate activist. I've been doing climate organizing and active activist um, things <laughs> for the past five years here in Scotland, um, where I did... Um, 
yeah, like um, I guess my studies around um, environmentalism, uh, I'm currently doing, currently doing my master's uh, in sustainability and behavior change or system change, really. Um, and yeah, I guess my my interests around like activism have always been fueled through like growing up in Germany and being taught a lot about like history and um, also like my current like lived experiences and privileges growing up in in Europe and um, I guess my climate activism is a connection between um, being interested in the environment, environmentalism, but also human rights. And um, so, yeah, I'm currently doing that um, through the Yikes podcast, um, but also um, writing and yeah, I guess also my academic work. Um, so, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. And um, yeah, I guess that follows on nicely. Um, I was wondering if you could reflect on how empowered you feel um, to engage with environmental activism um, and what sort of, what factors do you think influence this and how has this maybe changed over time? Mm, yeah, I think like growing up in Germany, I've always been taught in the environment that I was in um, a lot around like, you know, being silent and systems of oppressions is being complicit. And I think I've always felt like this great responsibility on my shoulders to be aware and to uh, learn about the privilege that I am, um, that I live in and that I, that I have in my life, but also how just being aware of them doesn't actually change anything. And therefore, you know, being, being active and playing an active role for social change is, I guess, kind of like my basic um, duty. Um, and so in that reason, you know, also like the context that I live in, um, being in the political climate that I am in here in Scotland, uh, you know, it's very actually safe and easy for me to engage in activism um, as as a white woman and with a with a German passport. Um, so I'm afforded a lot of these privileges um, that I feel like I have a duty to act on. And um, I guess growing up, like I was always taught, kind of in the environmental spaces that I was really interested in, that you know, climate change can be solved through a few little behavior changes. But actually, the more I learned, the more I got overwhelmed with, um, you know, like, how can refusing a plastic bottle or something like change, you know, such an impending crisis that is actually so interlinked with other systems of oppression as well. And, and I think that kind of like led me to this idea and like the understanding that like, collective agency and collective change is really the necess necessity and a foundation for tackling climate change. And, um, and through learning that I found, and like, that's how I feel empowered, you know, through communities, through my community and also other communities um, and this collective drive for better futures. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. And I think that's that nicely kind of just bringing it back to the, the drawing board, maybe you could share with us how you understand um, climate justice and and why do you think that it's important? Yeah, I guess, you know, when we look at like sustainability, obviously such a buzzword. Um, I always think of like sustainability as more of like we're trying to kind of uh, reduce um, environmental pressures or environmental harm. But climate justice is a lot more about like going to the root causes of what has created this climate crisis in the first place. And a lot of that look, you know, looks at the historic and the current injustices around capitalism and patriarchy and col colonialism and gender uh, and racism. Um, and so like, 
you know, looking at the intersections and how um, the climate crisis is not just a product of, but also a target for other injustices and how we can use this like, you know, co like collective approach to tackling, tackling these crises, because in, in the essence, like climate crisis is just an aggravator of other injustices. And, um, you know, while, while there are obviously like different degrees of how people are right now experiencing the climate crisis, obviously it's real in all parts of the world. But when we look at who's, who are at the forefront, it's those countries and those communities that have historically been, um, been exploited and also, you know, currently are still, um, not like not experiencing the justice that other people have. So, um, so yeah, so for me, like climate justice is exactly like speaking to those historic and current justices and also looking at like future generations, obviously, um, and how like if we don't act now that there will be a further colonization of future generations. Um, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and I really, I really love what you, how you focus on sort of collective action. And I think that that reminds me of um, in, in this conversation I had earlier with um, Muti, he, he mm -hmm. spoke to the way in which um, movements and theories like um, decolonization and, and Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, have dominated certain conversations globally, um, mm -hmm. don't always make that much sense in, in a Malawian context, at least that was his mm -hmm. opinion. And, um, you know, I, I guess the reason for this sort of dominance, as he called it, um, is... I suppose largely as a result of the fact that you know certain structural inequalities are so pervasive and widespread um, that we do you know we do need tools to sometimes to highlight and make sense of them. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, there are also ways in which we have to acknowledge the where there is not a universality and where we've maybe dominated certain agendas over others. And I, I was just wondering if you could um, you know reflect a bit on how do you think we can. Um, make sense of this point that Muti made um, in, in terms of climate justice. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really, I really love that point. Cause I guess when we think of, you know, how have we, for example, here in Scotland um, come to a certain living standard that we have, you know, it is through colonization historically and, but also currently of how, you know, we depend on products that are um, using exploitative labor that are, um, you know, extracted from the ground, from the earth in unsustainable and unjust matters to uh, the earth, to other uh, like non-human entities and also the human entities that live there. And so I guess, you know, f I think for us in, in Europe, for example, the concept of decolonization and especially for, for white people has been a buzzword over the last year um, and it's being whitewashed in that way. Because we think that only when we, you know, when we do certain things around inclusion and diversity, um, we will suddenly have climate justice. But actually, you know, um, there's a really wonderful paper um, that talks about decolonization is not a metaphor um, by Young and Tuck. And, you know, they talk about like how decolonization is essentially like, you know, sovereignty and indigenous people and um, communities on their own land making their own decisions. And when we look at the historical background, for example, through Scotland and, and current practices as well, we don't live in a system where, you know, where that is being afforded. And therefore, um, I don't think that we, like that I as a white person, for example, can decolonize, but 
um, like anything, because that essentially needs to be led by indigenous people and people of color um, based on their land. But um, I guess where like my activism comes in is that I, um, you know, I don't wait that for that to happen, but I try and communicate within the boundaries that I live in and in my co own community of like, you know, how can we, how can we learn and how can we do anti-racist work? Um, because not all environmentalism is good environmentalism. Um, a lot of bad things have come out of that, you know, and, um, and yeah, and therefore I guess like partnerships with international communities is super important because we can learn from them And actually, rather than always thinking we have to teach them, um, which is a very, you know, mindset also from colonialism, um, we can actually like kind of flip the coin and be like, well, you know, let's listen actually to the to the voices at the front lines of climate change and other um, issues as well, obviously, and listen to their perspectives and actually learn from them this time. Um, and, you know, like less less theorizing of justice and more practice of justice mm. yeah and and how do you think that your experience of engaging with uh, the climate crisis in Scotland maybe differs to someone a, a young person also in a country like Malawi yeah i mean obviously you know while climate change exists in all countries um you know Malawi is so much like so heavily already uh impacted by by the climate uh climate crisis compared to scotland um and is one of the frontline countries um and therefore i think the the realities are so different where you know like my entire livelihood here is almost a bit sheltered when when thinking about the climate crisis and we see that also in the way that our country, for example, speaks about more future generations where in Malawi is already the current generation that is suffering immensely from the climate crisis. So I think in, in many ways, like we have here in Scotland, we have so much to learn from the people and how they are managing, you know, to live in super unstable conditions uh, surrounding climate Um whilst also obviously um, applying this to our own context and looking at like, how, how can we in the short term, you know, manage our kind of resources and consumption levels whilst uh, thinking about the bigger picture and um, building these alliances. Yeah, brilliant. And I, I think that's the last sort of thing I want to ask following on from that is um, what you believe to be uh, important going forward in climate justice work in thinking about you know, what opportunities there are for two countries like Scotland and Malawi to learn from each other and um, how might sort of a partnership like this one improve access and agency in climate change efforts? Yeah, something that like I keep on coming back to um, is a quote by um, Amit who said that um, there's no guarantee in uh, being just in the pursuits of justice and like For me, I think like climate justice work is, you know, while it's a concept and while it's work, but it's also like a personal, I guess, like practice for me that I constantly reevaluate like when and how I can, um, you know, learn from people at the front lines, how I can, you know, um, best create conditions uh, here in Scotland in the context of, you know, advocating for climate justice um, for our communities but also, you know, building better coalitions globally 
And I do believe that a lot of climate justice work will need to be localized, but still I think we can learn so much through partner, like through inter international um, partnerships and um, also raise awareness, you know, here in Scotland about how the conditions around climate change are already affecting people, for example, in Malawi. And um, especially looking forward of how we build new futures, how we build uh, collective liberation. I think that's essential in considering how historic and current practices um, shape, um, you know, climate, climate change and need to be addressed uh, if we want collective liberation in the future. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you today. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on to speak to us. Thank you so much. We reached out to other young people involved in climate work in both Malawi and Scotland, and we'll share with you some of the most interesting inputs. You'll hear first from Waiwawu Tsamba, who is a young climate leader working with our sister office in Malawi, the Malawi-Scotland Partnership. Then we speak to Tionge Angela Banda, a personal development coach and a participant of the Rotary Youth Leadership Award based in Blantyre, Malawi. Finally, you'll hear from Ruby, a high school student based in the south of Scotland who is involved in sustainability partnerships and who recently spoke with members of the Scottish Parliament on climate issues, representing the young perspective. Hi, I'm Waiwawu Tsamba from Lilongi, Malawi, and I'm a climate change young leader and a Malawi Scotland partnership. I'm passionate about youth empowerment and environmental sustainability because uh, climate change is affecting young people living in rural areas, most of those depending on natural resources here in Malawi. So I decided to stand up and raise climate change awareness to young people living in rural areas so that they can adapt to climate change to reduce the negative impacts of climate change. I volunteer with different organizations like MASIP to raise climate change awareness among my fellow young people, to plant trees and to manage waste. I promote climate smart agriculture and conduct climate change research experiments. My involvement in different climate change work in Malawi and my involvement in climate in environmental activism has made me to realize that all people and communities have the right to equal protection and equal enforcement of environmental laws and regulations. And more effort is needed in Malawi in environmental activism if environmental sustainability is to be achieved. My experience compared to women in this way of climate change, the coming in of agenda equality has enabled women to take part in issues concerning climate change here in Malawi, as they are the most vulnerable group. Climate change impacts like droughts and floods has affected environment uh, availability of resources like water, food and firewood. And they are making women to walk longer distances to look for this kind of resources. So I'm glad um, most women are involved as well in climate change, in, in fighting climate change. Uh, crisis. Climate change crisis in Malawi differs to someone who is in developed countries like Scotland and other countries, because Malawi is the more is more vulnerable to climate change, and we have the fewest resources to adapt to climate change crisis. Droughts and floods have negatively affected the agriculture industry, as we depend on land-fed agriculture. 
and we can't adopt new technologies of farming like irrigation as most farmers don't have the financial capacity to do that while developed countries like Scotland people can easily adopt because they have the financial muscle to adopt new climate change technologies on issues of uh, on issue of uh, climate change justice yes it is important to acknowledge the differences because it will help countries to fight against climate change according to its own ability and cross-body with the harm it has done. Opportunities to learn from each other, Malawi and Scotland. Malawi being the most vulnerable. We have the opportunity to learn from the Scotland government. What measures and technologies are people taking? to mitigate and adopt to climate change in that in, in Scotland so that we can implement those new technologies here in Malawi. On COP26, in events like this, Malawi, more negotiation is needed. Malawi needs more support and investment in climate smart agriculture and clean energy. And we encourage more negotiations so that more support is done. Youth in Malawi are more innovative when it comes to climate change technologies. What they like most is the financial muscle to publicize their initiative. And it is an opportunity in events like this to allow youth in Malawi to display their technologies so that they can be publicized. Youth voice in Malawi has to be heard in big events like this. And I'm glad that the government of Malawi is taking some steps in making sure that youth are concerned uh, on some of the issues uh, that will be presented at COP26. My name is Tongi Angela Banda, also known as Tiwi. Um, how did I know or how did I get involved in climate work? I got involved in climate work through a leadership program that was held in Malawi uh, between the partnership Malawi and Scotland. It was a youth leadership award organized by Lottery Club called Lottery Youth Leadership Award. I was lucky enough to be a part of the participants that weren't there to learn so much about climate change. Uh, at first, I was a very ignorant person. I do not really pay attention to climate until I went for that leadership training and came back. I came back with so much knowledge and I just wanted to do more. That's how I got to know about climate work. Why did I get involved in climate work? I got involved because I saw what I did not previously see. So being out there and getting engaged with the community seeing the whole process of how a tree blossoms from being a seed and to what we see and how much it benefits us as people and how so well we connect with nature really got me inspired to be connected to this at the same time i'm just naturally a person that loves nature so being involved in such activities is so welcoming for me and i feel like i am supposed to take care of nature as it already takes care of me. How empowered am I to engage in environmental activism? 
I'm so empowered because the very first thing I look at when I visit a community is how clean the environments are. Uh, what factors do I think influence this? The consciousness and awareness I was brought to light. Civic education. Civic education is a very, very huge factor that influences my action, ability to be able to see how has this perhaps changed over time. Uh, for me, it hasn't really changed. In fact, it's, it's put me in a position where I'm able to do even more. Um, like, I have a project at hand that I would like to work with Johanne Banda Foundation to uh, put Ntopa community together right here in Atlanta in Bangui so that we can be able to take out all of the plastic that is in their environment as one way of teaching the community on how to be responsible. Uh, this survey was held and was done through a street kids assessment. But during the street kids assessment, we saw that the irresponsibility is not only coming at an individual level, family level, but at a community level, the ability where they're able to take care of the environment. So that is, uh, for me, it hasn't really changed over time but it has just given me the zeal and passion to even do more and further. How do I think my experience engaging with climate crisis in Malawi differs from somebody living in Scotland? Well, it's a very big difference. The biggest challenge, I think, um, I would say in my experience is that nature is viewed as a race thing, so it's not necessarily, okay, in short, uh, not to be offensive, but then uh, nature is, is claimed to be a white man thing, you know, a white mind thing. So it's white people that are fascinated about nature and black people just feel like it is nothing. So how we take care of the environment also differs from how a person living in Scotland might take care of environment depending on the knowledge and the type of experience with the environment they've had. So I think environment itself and the knowledge and perception of civic education one has has a very big role on, on, on what happens here. So I would say there's a very, very huge, huge gap and there's so much that needs to be done for people to re realize that uh, climate is something that we can all be responsible and take care of, the planting of trees and all of these things. And um, one other point on that is that I look at Malawi and I look at a lot of things that happen and how a lot of things are not on social media, a lot of, pe a lot of things are not really advocated that much, and then a lot of people are not following. So if an opportunity where social content is made and made available and advocated much so, so that a lot of young people can have an awareness like we have a Malawi-Scotland partnership, we have this and that. If you ask a lot of people around here, they'll tell you they have no idea. But so I feel like that is an opportunity that can be created so that a lot of mind, a lot of young people can, can be engaged in these activities because young people are the ones that are, have to take so much responsibility into planting more trees, into making sure that we're not 
putting down all of these things. What opportunities do I think there could be between Malawi and Scotland? Uh, I would really have to recommend the great work that Scotland and Malawi had put together by developing the leadership program because it led to somebody like myself to learn so much about climate and be conscious of it eventually. So if more programs like that would be put up, I think that could take us somewhere. Hi, I'm Ruby, I'm 17 and I'm in S6, which is the last year of high school in Scotland. Um, I'm part of Fridays for Future Scotland in the Scottish Borders and I decided to join because when I first learned about climate change, I felt really scared and I knew that I didn't want to sit around and let it happen. I thought that I wanted to have a positive impact on the world, however small, and the best way to do this was to campaign for a greener and more just future. I've attended climate strikes and joined organisations committed to helping fight climate change. Currently, we are in conversation with local politicians discussing their views on climate change and what they can do to help. I live in quite a rural part of Scotland, which means that it is harder to come together with other like-minded people. And there are also certain barriers to becoming greener that aren't there in more populated areas. As a Scottish citizen, I recognise that I have a lot of privilege which I can use to change the climate. As an individual, I feel I can reduce my carbon th footprint through my consumer choices. Politically, I recognise that Scotland has a small impact on overall carbon emissions compared to the bigger countries. However, we have a big responsibility to reduce our impact and I do feel like citizens will play a crucial role in that. I think that what must happen in Scotland is that people must all take individual responsibility for our actions. We have to recognise and acknowledge the true cost of our lifestyles on the planet and use our privilege to make more sustainable choices and pressure the government to do the same. Having our views listened to seriously and not being tokenised or infantilised. Also, using social media definitely engages and reaches more young people. We could work internationally by creating personal connections with people abroad. We could learn about the other's culture, activism or struggles and use that to decide together how best to support one another. There's probably many ways to work internationally, but we have to make sure that the conversation isn't dominated by a few countries. That was three young voices from Scotland and Malawi. It was great to hear the inspiring work that they're doing. A huge thank you from myself and the Scotland-Malawi Partnerships Youth Committee to everyone who contributed to this conversation. For me, this served as a humbling reminder of how varied uh, our experiences and understandings of the climate crisis and social justice issues are, and how much we can learn from each other and build more empathetic and nuanced narratives going forward. Sometimes the fear of using the wrong language or saying the wrong thing can prevent people from engaging with these topics, and um, this can especially be true for young people and across different cultures. I hope this podcast and our conversations going forward can cultivate an environment where young people can feel empowered to engage in conversations like these. We'll pick up on the key takeaways from today's podcast at Young Voices on Climate Justice, a webinar where I'll be hosting discussions between some of today's speakers and more. If you've missed that on the 18th of March, you'll be able to catch the highlights on the Scotland Malawi Partnerships website. If you have any reflections on today that you'd like to share, engage with us on Instagram at Scott Malawi Youth. My name is Danny Lagos. I've been your host today, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts and reflections on this.